Teddy told me that in Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. It's a twinge in your heart, far more powerful than memory alone. This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. Uh, hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. Uh, I'm Matt Risby. Uh, good evening. And uh, joining me as always for the uh, kind of miracle of internet technology is Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? All right. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm just uh, adjusting to the fact that we now live in a world where Brad Bird has released a film and I didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. Disappointing news on the Tomorrowland front, I believe. Yeah, I mean, when we were talking about Ang Lee a few weeks ago, we were talking about how Taking Woodstock is, by most people's fan standards, a kind of a fine film, but by his standards, it's, you know, easily his worst. And it's the same with Tomorrowland. I think if anyone else had directed it, uh, like if the guy who had directed, I don't know, Journey to the Mysterious Island or something, someone who makes just kind of anonymous uh, studio stuff, then you'd think, oh, this is this is a film with some interesting ideas and it's got some really nice, direct, nicely directed uh, sequences and everything. But coming from... Uh, coming from Brad Bird, who has up to this point been uh, kind of batting a thousand, uh, it's uh, it's it's uh, kind of uh, a big fall in uh, quality. Mm. And he's someone who turned down the opportunity to do Star Wars for that. Yeah, which uh, you know you have to respect him for wanting to pursue an original property, even though uh, it's one based on an attraction at Disney World. Uh, but mm. uh, you know the the the, the actual name Tomorrowland is pretty far removed from what the film is actually about in terms of plot and theme, but the uh, you do kind of think well, we probably would have got a really good Star Wars film, film out of him if he had uh, just decided, yeah, go for the uh, big iconic thing. Mm. I mean, I think uh, The Incredibles is the only original thing he's done, is that right? Uh, and Ratatouille. Oh yeah, right too. That's right. Okay. Uh, although that was, uh, he came in and worked on it from someone else's script because the original director was uh, was taken off the project because things weren't going well. Oh, okay. All right. He's the man you call in uh, difficult circumstances. Maybe he can replace Josh Trank uh, on that anthology film. Oh, that would actually be. He would probably slot in pretty nicely to that. If uh, certainly, if you get into the, if he becomes sort of like the uh, the next Andrew Stanton, the animation guy who directs a live-action film that doesn't do particularly well but costs a lot of money. So mm. you kind of get him in, and whereas Andrew Stanton's making Finding Dory, for him it'd be like, maybe you'd direct the Star Wars film now. Yeah, yeah, decent consolation prize. And it's a shame because Tomorrowland was one of the ones we picked out in our kind of year preview of uh, One to Look Forward To, which leads me onto the subject of something else uh, that has turned out to be a huge disappointment that featured quite highly on our... Uh, most anticipated films of 2015. I have distressing news for all our listeners, um, and it's that uh, the film Pitch Perfect 2 is acca not very good. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was one that we both said we were sort of looking forward to because obviously we both enjoyed the first film, but uh, I think there was a certain lightning in a bottle vibe to that original that uh, always seemed like it'd be a bit hard to maintain. 
I didn't just enjoy the first film, but I loved the first film. Mm. Um, and uh, we've talked before about Anna Kendrick being, you know, the most likable person in Hollywood, if not the world. Um, and uh, if you want to see uh, what me and Ed mean uh, when we talk about sequelitis, uh, go and watch Pitch Perfect Two because uh, it is uh, has a terminal case of the sequelitis in the sense that you know they've clearly kind of had an unexpected success and uh, trying to replicate it um but you know because it was unexpected they weren't expecting to make a second film therefore didn't really have any ideas so it's kind of just like a tired lukewarm rehash of moments from the first film um rebel wilson gets some good moments but it's just not enough to lift it also it's kind of a bit racist i've heard uh, that yeah that it, yeah. they they have lots of they do that thing which is really annoying where they have characters say really racist things but because they're not characters you meant to like they kind of act like oh we're just being ironic it's not being seriously racist well there's there's moments of that but there's also you know there's the korean girl uh, mm-hmm. who do, who doesn't say anything uh, well, she she speaks very very quietly, and we very hear her. What she's saying is kind of deeply disturbing. Like I ate my own twin in the womb, yeah, uh, type thing. Um, well, obviously she gets to do that again for the whole film, uh, which is again just rehashing the same jokes from last time. But there's a they've got an extra Bella from Guatemala, whose every every line of dialogue she has is about how she illegally uh, emigrated to the country and nearly died. Like literally every single line she has, uh, which is kind of terrible. And it works once when uh, John Michael Higgins gets to make a joke about it in the opening scene and then it just continues for two hours. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think that worked about the the first film is that uh, a lot of the characters were essentially one joke. There's the quiet talking girl, there's uh, you know the character of Fat Amy, but as they go along, I think you, they kind of get a little bit more depth just from the way they interplay with each other. Is there Are there moments in this film where they actually kind of move away from the plot and you get to see them interact or is it more just kind of like we need to have lots of songs on the soundtrack because that's where we're going to make a lot of money yeah pretty much that is pretty much it um there is there is a lot of montages mm-hmm. um they kind of shoehorn some of the old characters in there there is a dreadful piece of product placement where um for some reason uh, they go to check out the competition of who they're going to like go up against at the acapella world championships but they have to go and do it at a car show for volkswagen uh, where a new model of Volkswagen is revealed, and then there's weirdly an a cappella contest. Um, but obviously, because they're the, the team they're playing in German, it's kind of loosely connected. But they have this whole dialogue scene in front of a big uh, Volkswagen advert. Yeah, and that that sounds uh, very disappointing, especially because it wasn't that expensive a film. You wouldn't expect they would need to kind of bolster it with uh, product placement. But I guess Volkswagen want to get some of that uh, some of that a cappella money. Yeah, <laughs> there's money in that a cappella, son. Um, but uh, the, the other thing that I learned from Pitch Perfect 2 is uh, Esther Dean, who is uh, the actress who plays, uh, not wanting to kind of pigeonhole the actress, the black lesbian, mm-hmm. um, for kind of brevity's sake. Um, she, Her name is Esther Dean. Uh, I found this out by kind of just clicking through on, on Wikipedia. Um, she might be one of the most successful songwriters living at the moment. Uh, she wrote Starships for Nicki Minaj. Uh, she uh, wrote... Uh, uh, Rude Boy for uh, Rihanna. She's written songs for Kelly Clarkson, Pussycat Dolls, Usher, Kelly Rowland, uh, R. Kelly, Britney Spears, uh, Little Wayne, Tiny Temper. Um, yeah, a lot of things. Uh, so she's kind of, she, she's, I don't know why she's in Pitch Perfect 1 and 2. <laughs> and she's kind of fucking slumming it, really. Uh, maybe it's just her hobby. I mean, she does sound like she could 
buy or sell pretty much the entire cast. So she thought, oh, I'll try acting for a bit. Yeah, why the hell not? Um, two years younger than me as well, wasting her life. <laughs> you know, get a real job. Um, also this week, uh, uh, what we talk about, I think you see, I, I watched um, The Dark Crystal, which is a film um, that I watched because last week we were talking about nostalgia, um, which was uh, a kind of a good episode, and I'm sure you all heard it, everyone, but there's one thing we kind of didn't get to touch on, which is... Um, you know, whether you should kind of revisit films from your childhood and see if they're any good. And I have seen it uh, as an adult, um, but it's a film that I only enjoy on the basis of nostalgia. It's not a very good film. Um, it's quite kind of poor. Um, but the thing is, the, the, the kind of puppets and the world that's created is, is really kind of memorable because Jim Henson's workshop has kind of made this these kind of really elaborate puppets and uh, these kind of huge sets that are kind of really beautiful. But the story kind of literally was like cobbled together before they started chewing. It's just really, it's like a, a you know, kind of mishmash of Lord of the Rings and, and Star Wars. It's, you know, really lame. Um, but what I was thinking was, is something we didn't touch upon in the nostalgia thing is that like whereas a lot of people object to films being remade because they don't want their kind of childhood ruined and they don't want their kind of favorite films ruined i would wholeheartedly support a remake of the dark crystal if you kept the um the kind of uh, the attitude and, and the approach we're doing it with puppets and things but just wrote a fucking decent script uh, and kind of augmented it with like some cgi that would kind of you know hide the strings and so on and so forth that would be a really good movie and sure that's the approach to take you don't remake classics that are really good you remake films that don't work yeah that that always seems to be the best way because obviously you have a lot more room for improvement there i think Mm. as long as you're going into it with the correct attitude then uh, uh, you can produce some good work i think if you look at something like i mean the original thing from another world is kind of a minor sci-fi classic but it's not by no means a perfect film and there was plenty of room to improve upon it when john carpenter remade it I think mm. you can see there. He obviously has a great deal of affection for it, but he looks at that and compares it to the Campbell short story and saw that there was a lot of darkness and paranoia to it but that the original film only really touched upon. And, you know, there was a lot of opportunity there to expand upon that and obviously to improve the level of the effects. So I think uh, in cases like that, where you can clearly see there's plenty of room for improvement, mm. uh, that that is the way to do it. I felt the same way about uh, Clash of the Titans, another film that like, I watched a lot as a kid, um, and then I watched it as an adult, and you realise the film is, is really bad. And like, uh, I remember when it was remade, people said, oh, this is just a, uh, you know, a lame film that's just a re- that, you know, it's just getting from one monster fight to the next. And if you watch the original, that's exactly what that is. It's just Ray Harryhausen came up with like four or five decent monsters, and the plot is just a, a really poor excuse to kind of hop between them. Um, and I thought, well, hang on, that would be a really good film to remake. Um, but no, they fucked that up as well. Mm, but also it's an opportunity for character actors to show up and just kind of ham it up for a little bit. I I, I, I rewatched that recently and I, I enjoyed it. But again, it was largely because you have these great, cool special effects. And then you get to see Burgess Meredith kind of really having a ball as uh, someone who's just thinks, yeah, I'm going to play this for the uh, everyone in the back row. Mm, yeah, yeah. He, and, he, he eats quite a lot of uh, Doric pillars in that. He is uh, uh, insatiable with uh, kind of uh, hunger. And Laurence Olivier thinks, I can do this role sitting down. <laughs> well, I will take it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
and uh, yeah, it's got some of the worst day for night photography you'll ever see in a film. <laughs> um, you know, definitely uh, worth seeing for that reason alone. Um, Letterman finished this week. That's probably the big kind of TV news. Yeah, that was uh, certainly something that I was uh, not exactly looking forward to because he's uh, an icon and something of an institution. And even though I could never claim to be someone who watched a huge amount of his work because it didn't get shown in the UK and I only watched it him sporadically over here. Uh, you know, from the things I've seen, some of his bits, like in the episode, in the final episode, they highlighted uh, an amazing bit of comedy where he spent several hours working as the uh, the other end of the kind of order machine in a Taco Bell <laughs> and just relentlessly fucked with the customers for several hours, which was uh, really fantastic. He was doing things like pretending that the microphone was broken so that someone would be screaming at the machine or uh, asking a woman to order him his food because they said that if you work there, you can't order it, but he'll pay her back and stuff <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, and just from things like uh the bill carter book the late shift kind of understanding how he was pretty much screwed out of the tonight show gig there's or there's he has this thing of being both a venerable uh successful person who's managed to make it uh, something of a uh, of a kind of a space for himself on cbs and to be the only person to seriously uh challenge nbc for the late night crown in you know, 60, 70 years or however long those shows have been around. And mm. at, well, at the same time feeling like he's someone who was hard done by, which is yeah. uh, a weird position for someone to be in. But uh, yeah, so seeing him go was sad on that level, but also you kind of got a sense that, sense that it would be uh, kind of an event. Mm. And it was, um, it's weird about Letterman because he's kind of so, you know, world renowned, but he's, he doesn't really get shown much outside of America. And, like I mean, I kind of um, discovered him, I guess, uh, on, because obviously he's famous and you hear his name. But uh, in the kind of mid '90s, Sky One um, showed uh, the Late Show kind of the day after it aired, mm. and I, I was kind of uh, in my teenage years, kind of staying up late and, and watching a lot of films and kind of videoing a lot of films, and it always seemed to catch uh, the Late Show. But then after a while, uh, the series ended, or there was a break, I think. And they went all the way back to the first show that he did on TBS and started showing them in order. Mm. And I don't know if they did it for very long, but it was fucking great. And I kind of watched it and you kind of, you always think, why can't there be something like this? It's like one of those things like Saturday Night Live. It's not, it just doesn't work over here, even as many times that, you know, it's been tried. Um, Although kind of Jonathan Ross has a, you know, very, very similar show over here, but it's, you know, nowhere near as interesting or good. Yeah, because he obviously doesn't come from that, comedy a stronger comedy background so he's more interested in the the in interview side of things whereas mm. i think the key appeal of letterman is he could not give a fuck about the people he's talking to half the time um and that was something that set him apart from the early days is that irreverence that you see compared to everyone else working in late night comedy and that informed all of the comedy bits but it also meant that he would be perfectly happy to just sit with people and if it was someone that he genuinely enjoyed spending time with like Bill Murray he would just kind of sit and uh, shoot the shit with them but if it was someone whose work he clearly hadn't seen and didn't really care about he would just find ways to needle them and play with them <laughs> yeah which was always good to watch um, Letterman finishing was uh, a big TV story uh, this week but it wasn't the biggest because uh, Mad Men finished 
uh, a week ago today. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, just to let you know that if you haven't seen the latest season of Mad Men, then listen no further. Um, because we're going to spoil it and the end and talk about the finale in great detail. Um, so go away, watch it, and then come back and join us. Done it? Good. Awesome. Let's proceed. The finale, Ed, satisfying? Uh, I felt so, yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on how you went into it, because I remember, or or in the lead-up to it, a lot of the reviews seemed to be slightly, uh, uh, slightly mooted towards it. It was like, compared to previous seasons, I remember... The first half of season seven, which aired last year, I felt was received very, very strongly by people because uh, there were just a, a string of great episodes, but there wasn't a sense that it was really building towards anything in a real way because it wasn't. It was seven episodes and then they were going to make another seven episodes that would wrap everything up. Mm. Uh, and I think that these seven had the same feel to it. It was just seven really strong episodes of television, but because, again, it didn't feel like it was building up to much, because that's not the sort of show Mad Men is. It wasn't a show that kind of had a plot that was going to be resolved at the end of it. I think mm. people were, were felt, you know, is this how this great show is going to go out, by not having a sense of ceremony to everything? It's kind of, like, bizarre to, to kind of um, have a show where it's not rushing to tie every loose end up. Um mm. Um, I suppose the end, the very end of the episode where we see a kind of a brief touching on key characters' lives and events is the closest thing we get to that. And even then, like I think Matthew Weiner said this, or maybe it was John Hamm said it in a post-show interview where he he talked about how people can read that as being a super kind of a mega happy ending, to put it in Wayne's World terms, uh, because you see Stan and Peggy get together, you see Joan starting her own company and everything, but uh, and Don seems to reach, possibly reach a place of, of peace with himself, but at the same time, the show doesn't give you the sense, oh, that this is exactly how everything's going to go for them, that their lives are going to be rosy from here, because the show has repeatedly ended seasons like that, where you know they, they lead and form their own firm, and they're full of hope and excitement, or Don's kind of decided he's going to get his life together, and then the next year it comes back and everything's falling apart, or things are terrible. So there's no guarantee that that happiness is going to last past the end of the credits. Mm. And it's uh, it's going to be unavoidable that we, we we don't talk about the final shot and and the conclusion uh, in which uh, Don is shown uh, shown to be meditating. He's kind of uh, accidentally got himself stuck, uh, kind of hippie retreat. Um, we see probably Don's greatest moment and the kind of probably the most important show, bit in the the show. Full stop in all seven seasons where. Uh, he hugs a dude, and that's pretty mm. much all that happens. But then he is uh, seen meditating with some hippies um, and uh, kind of uh, seems to find a moment of clarity or a kind of uh, a moment of transcendence. And uh, then we cut to one of the most famous television adverts of all time, uh, the Coca-Cola I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing advert, which kind of heavily implies that he realised uh, what his life's true purpose was and returned to New York with a clear mind and wrote a very famous advert. Mm, but the, again, there's a, a an ambiguity to that. I mean, I think everyone has pretty much uh, decided that this point, this point that he wrote that ad because it's perfectly in keeping with the sort of work he would do. But there's a sense of, did he write that ad because he reached a point of genuine transcendence and he felt that he could use it 
to present this really hopeful message or was he doing it as a way of uh, just kind of cynically exploiting people's desire for something grander in life mm. uh, which i think is uh, a very interesting uh, note of ambiguity to end on because it's not ambiguous in the same way that the sopranos ending was in that it's kind of forcing it it's kind of ramming it down your throat the question of what happened next is more kind of saying you've watched the whole show your opinion of don's capacity to change is uh really what will decide you know how you feel about this final these final moments mm. and how did you feel about it uh i think that his kind of emotional breakthrough uh at the sh- uh, at the the retreat sitting there with brett gelman who uh <laughs> whose appearance distracted me no end <laughs> because i kept thinking about his eye brain story from comedy bang bang yeah it's waiting um, for him to pitch it to don Um, I think his breakthrough was more significant than the various kind of peaks and troughs of his life that we've seen up to that point so I think that he is fundamentally different how he was at the start of the season and at the start of the show and while he probably will continue to fight his demons he's probably not going to be as uh, he there's a chance I feel that he'll find happiness Mm. and that he wasn't just being cynical. A huge moment as well with his phone call to Peggy, Mm. uh, which was, uh, you know, very apt given that, you know, when he's chosen to reveal moments of himself uh, in the show, uh, he has um, tended to be to Peggy, who is kind of the yin to his yang, I guess, in this show. Um, And that was a wonderful little moment for those two. Yeah, I was... uh, I tweeted uh, while I was watching it that... I was really impressed by the way the show managed to include two of the best scenes of the whole show in its final episode. One was him talking to Peggy on the phone, but also the scene of uh, Stan and Peggy realising that they love each other, which was just cute enough. Mm. Yeah, um, and not not like super convenient, because the thing is is, is that um, if it was convenient, then everyone would get what they wanted. But Peggy mm. has to sacrifice her career by turning down the partnership with Joan. Yeah, and also something that I felt see was both kind of out of nowhere, but also feels perfectly in tune with their relationship. Because if you go back to when he first joined the firm and they were really at odds with each other, there was always a great sexual chemistry bubbling under the surface there, such as in the, the episode where they both uh, stripped naked to work together to see who could be more comfortable and who could make the other more uncomfortable, <laughs> which was kind of the uh, the... A crucial moment in their the, the development of their relationship with each other and when you see them past that their kind of playfulness is the sort of thing where I kind of spent a long time I think I probably spent about a season wondering when they were going to get together and then it had been so long I just forgot <laughs> so for it to kind of come back at the end it made you think oh yeah there was a lot of groundwork for this but things just never seemed to come together in the right place for them yeah it, I mean that kind of is uh, indicative of how Mad Men goes about its business um, there's not huge big plot points that are kind of you know uh, uh, kind of signalled months in advance and built up to things just kind of happen and you kind of they're just uh, called back to in very subtle ways uh, very quiet ways and very deliberate ways um, and the kind of people behind the show are good enough to let the viewer kind of you know work it out for themselves yeah and I think that may be why the sh- the finale didn't work for some people because I think 
Oh, I saw a lot of people say that they didn't like it because it was so low on kind of plot and that was just indicative of the show in general. And that's what I like about the show. It wasn't a show that was heavy on kind of plot. It was more about atmosphere and about the way that the characters grew over time. And, you know, it was, uh, even though there were, there were ongoing plot lines and there were interesting dynamics, it was often just a really great hangout show where you could just watch it and the characters were hugely entertaining and interesting to be around. Mm. And it kind of always kept true to the idea that, uh, I mean, like uh, a lot of people were brought to the wire by uh, Charlie Brooker and him talking about it. I was brought to Mad Men by Charlie Brooker and he said, the, the, you know, the really interesting thing about the show is that everyone is hiding something mm. uh, and it's not always clear what. And it's always, that's always been the same. That's been so consistent all the way through the show. It's been that way. And uh, still the characters are hiding things from each other and themselves. Yeah, I think the thing that I've found interesting when thinking about the show over time and how it's changed is that it was a show that remained visually very consistent. The style of it was there in the pilot and it never really changed, but there were always things underneath the surface that very subtly shifted, which is in keeping with the show where everyone was kind of impeccably dressed and everyone looked amazing, but uh, and they were kind of hiding dark secrets or, or whatever was going on in their lives. And I think that it's interesting to chart the way the show started as the, you know, it started essentially as a mystery where it was like, who is Don Draper? What has he done? You know, and all these things. And what I found very impressive thinking on the show and how it grew was how that was actually an incredibly unimportant part of the show in the long run. Mm. Obviously the, the mystery of who he was took you into that world. But by the end of the first season, that was completely resolved and you realised, oh, it doesn't matter that he's living a lie, because no one cares. <laughs> and the show could then grow after introducing you to that world. And mm. uh, I think that it's so rare to see a show take its basic premise and realise when it has reached the, the end of its usefulness, because most shows will just kind of play it out for far too long and, you know, to the to its detriment. Mm. It's, it's interesting you say that... Um... When it when it is kind of revealed that he is living a lie and no one cares, it's pretty much because everyone else is mm. um, to some degree or another. Um, it's interesting to kind of say about the show's consistency because the one thing I'd say about Mad Men as a whole over seven seasons is it is the most consistent show I think I've seen uh, in this kind of golden age of TV, which is getting kind of tiresome to say. Mm. Um, in that I can't identify a strong or weak season of the seven. Uh, it has been remarkably. Uh, high on quality uh, every single one yeah it kind of becomes a, a case where you're when you evaluate it you have to look at very minor shifts really than anything major i think the the thing that i find interesting is how the show very very subtly expanded its scope in terms of the amount of sto- the number of people's stories that it would tell because mm. when it started it seemed to be okay this is a show about Don and it's about Peggy and to a lesser extent about Pete and then as it got along it became about Betty as well and also Joan became a major character and all these characters who seemed to be supporting by the end were pretty much leads you know uh, 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 Sally was kind of a huge part in various seasons but also characters importance would ebb and flow over time you know characters could be really central to one season uh, but not to others and I think the show's ability to balance a pretty sizable ensemble 
was one of the really impressive things about how it managed to create this uh, really rich world, which you really see in the final season when they bring characters back, often for just a scene at a time, such as Linda Cardellini, who is literally on screen for about 30 seconds. Mm. Yeah, they get that great moment in their lift, which is, you know, when he's with the other woman, it's just like, I think she had the line, doesn't she? She says, how many other women have you had in this lift? Mm. Uh, and it's just a great moment that never feels like fan service of like, you know, bringing in someone for a cameo, which is, which is nice. Um, I kind of, some people struggled with the show because um, I've heard some people criticize Mad Men for being style over substance. Mm. Um, and I think that's generally kind of, you know, people can't get past the fact that in the first season, it is a shock uh, to see characters who drink and smoke all day uh, and generally treat women and any other minority group terribly. And it just to be kind of, um, you know, not mentioned. And I think some people, definitely some people I've spoken to, um, think that the show is drawing attention to, hey, look what it used to be like in the old days. And it really isn't. It's just kind of, it's just a thing that we're so not used to. It feels like it's being drawn attention to. Those things don't change. People still drink at 11 o'clock in the morning and smoke like chimneys. Um, but it's, it's it's really not that kind of uh, uh, outlandish uh, kind of stylistic choice. Yeah, and I feel like that that's a case of mistaking the thing that is kind of the easy selling point for the actual meat of the show. Because mm. it's kind of like you know when you look at the logline for Breaking Bad, you know the idea of oh, a a chemistry teacher who decides to become a meth dealer really doesn't. The uh, kind of encompass the idea of that show as an exploration of the extremes that someone will go to and the nature of of power and money corrupting people. Um, you know, you just basically say, "Oh, you know, it's the dad from Malcolm in the Middle, and he's becoming a meth dealer." Uh, in the case of Mad Men, that was the easy thing to point to: is you know, it has this elegant '60s style, but also these weird older attitudes that have gone out of fashion now. And what the show was actually about was how a broader society deals with a time of immense turmoil and change and how for a lot of people, i.e. kind of wealthy white people, those changes were only felt on the periphery, but they uh, were indicative of the turmoil that all these people were going through uh, personally and the way that the kind of broader society manifested itself in individuals. Mm, that's probably one of the, the show's kind of strongest points. I mean, it is set in the real world and real events play into uh, the show's plot and, and kind of what, how it affects the characters uh, season to season and watching kind of shifting uh, attitudes to things like gender politics and other social mores um, is really fun to watch characters either adapting to those or not adapting to those. And also the way that it would very, very subtly hint at ways that New York was changing because mm. it takes place Certainly the later seasons take place just as the the city was uh, becoming the kind of hellhole you see it depicted as in something like um, Clute or Taxi Driver or uh, The Warriors, you know, that kind of whole strain of 70 fil- 70s films which depict New York as a lawless hellscape. And mm. uh, But in Mad Men, because everyone is, you know, pretty well off and... Uh, and pretty far removed from all of that, it only manifests itself sometimes in uh, the fact that in later seasons you hear more 
kind of police sirens in the background and the occasional gunshot, which you don't mm. really hear in earlier episodes and then uh, and I think that that is a testament to its uh, uh, dedication to depicting these people and their world as they would experience through their point of view. Mm. Tone-wise, um, do you agree that the, the the show feels very much like a throwback um, to a kind of a different storytelling age? Uh, in some respects, in that I think it, it balances moments of kind of very wry humour with a real deep melancholy and sadness. Um, but also I think in terms of the fact that each episode feels very much like a singular unit. And mm. even though you would have stuff like ongoing plot lines going on in the characters' lives or to do with the various buyouts or faced by the agency and things like that, those things were not... It wasn't super heavily serialised in the way that, um, you know, you're Breaking Bads and The Wire were. It felt like... It felt closer to The Sopranos, which Matthew Weiner was a key part of for for several years than it does uh, some of the shows that came after. Mm. Do you buy the argument that some people have made that Mad Men is a soap for men? Uh, I don't, because I don't feel like it was a show primarily about men. I mean, men are in the title, but I feel like it's equally as much about the 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 way that women were treat, treated in that world. And certainly as the show got on, that became more important. And the fact that you could really see it as a show primarily about Don and Peggy than mm. uh, about it. And I think that if it was just a soap for men, those characters wouldn't be given anywhere near the amount of attention or the amount of depth that they were given. What about the uh, the rather derogatory use of the word soap there? I think that may be just my own kind of... I, th- I think soap is, for me, is kind of uh, synonymous with a kind of melodrama that is just kind of very uh, kind of built upon plot twists that don't really uh, amount to anything. Whereas I feel like, although... Uh, Mad Men was a very melodramatic show. It was much more in keeping with kind of the Douglas Sirk kind of melodrama, where mm. it's really more about the emotion, the psychological uh, inner lives of the characters than about you know people having amnesia or being <laughs> twins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and let's not forget that Twin Peaks was probably the weirdest soap ever made. Mm, um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's not. You know, it can be you know a half decent label to stick on something. Um, when I was talking about kind of being a throwback show, um, in the terms of the things that we like, it's films of the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a direct link there to how I think a lot of the the ideas are approached, the kind of very slow, deliberate way that the story is told, and the fact that they brought Robert Town in uh, for the last three seasons as well to write. If you're going to try and uh, do a, a kind of intelligent TV show. Why not bring in, you know, the dude who wrote one of the best scripts of all time? Yeah, I mean, there was a, there's definitely a love for that era, and I think that if you read interviews with Matthew Weiner where he talks about the influences, you can really see how much... Maybe he didn't fetishise that era, but he certainly looked at it and, and really responded to that kind of storytelling. And like you say, they brought in Robert Town, and I think there's probably four or five other kind of veteran writers from the 50s and 60s they brought in to consult and things like that. Mm. And I think that's partly, you know, a sense of wanting to get the period right. But I think it's also a case of them saying, you know, why wouldn't you hire Robert Town to work on your show for a few years? 
Yeah, yeah. And it's an, almost like an embarrassment of riches those guys had towards the end of uh, both cast and crew. It was uh, probably one of the strongest ensembles uh, working. And like you said, it became very clear very quickly how they were keen to expand that range of characters out. Um, and it, but it all, always remained kind of a whiner's voice. Yeah, and, and an ensemble amazingly strong who never, ever won Emmys for acting, which I find kind of incredible. Mm, that's, yeah, I mean, I'm very surprised that, like, John Hamm or Elizabeth Moss or, you know, Roger Sterling, uh, I forget his name, John Slattery, yeah. um, didn't win. I mean, he's kind of steals a lot of scenes, uh, most often by walking in and just puking into them. <laughs> in I think in a lot of cases that may have been because, certainly in the later seasons when they would get nominated sort of 16, 17 times, they would have two or three actors in a category. So I feel like they probably hurt themselves just by the sheer quality of their uh, their supporting cast. Like if you're putting Linda Cardellini against Christina Hendricks, then you know people are going to be really they're going to really struggle to actually pick which one of those to vote for. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's not the first great TV show to be overlooked awards wise, and uh, the Wire didn't win anything, did it? Mm. Although it did win Best Drama four years in a row, but of the Hundred something Emmys it was nominated for it only won sixteen. Oh, that's a poor return. Sorry, fifteen. Yeah, which is uh, a incredible, but also yeah, <laughs> just kind of mind boggling. Mm-hmm. But I suppose we we live in an age where the competition is quite tough, you know. Um, yeah, it didn't help that it was up against uh, Breaking Bad for several of those years. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What do you think the uh, the show's legacy is, Ed? I think a big part of its legacy, I think we're we're still living with it now. You know, we talk about the idea of a golden age of TV, and yes, it's boring, and I won't mention it again. But the the idea, one of the key things, and this is something that you see in uh, the Revolution was televised by Alan Sevenwall, and also in uh, Difficult Men by uh, Brett Martin, where for a very long time. Uh, HBO had the monopoly on prestige drama. Um, you know, they had The Sopranos, they had Deadwood, they had The Wire, uh, they had stuff like Carnival, which was you know not entirely successful uh, in terms of getting an audience, but was certainly very, very acclaimed. And they were kind of the key house, and you would occasionally get an outlier like The Shield, which would make a big splash, but never quite reach that level of cultural saturation or of critical uh, consensus. Mm. And then Mad Men, which was the script that that uh, I think Weiner had written in about 2000 and which actually got him the job on The Sopranos and was offered to HBO and they turned it down. When it landed at AMC, it and it became you know this huge cultural phenomenon and this real strong reference plot point, it expanded the field in a way that hadn't been done for a while. There was a sense that not everything great has to be on HBO. People started going, clamouring to AMC, and when AMC turned shows down, people thought, you know, other cable channels were like, well, you know, if AMC can do it, why can't Mm. we? And you start to see, like, FX start to really increase their creative thing. And I think the, uh, the shockwave of thinking, you know, a great show, HBO isn't the only place for great drama anymore, uh, I think was is probably going to be one of its most lasting legacies. Mm. It really did kind of like spread the love around. 
And, and now, like we've said before, we're seeing, uh, you know, no end of weird um, outlets, you know, programming original stuff. Um, uh, PlayStation Network, Amazon, I'm pretty sure Asda are doing something. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, that's all down to, you know, almost breaking that monopoly of HBO, I guess. And also, if you look at a lot of the stuff that the BBC have been making in the last few years, something like The Hour, which was very much their attempt to do a madman kind of show, you know, set in the 60s in a very specific uh, location and, and cultural context and trying to explore uh, issues of gender within that, that kind of time period. I think the way in which it basically said, yeah, people will watch different kind of shows than just stuff about... Obviously, it's a show about a dark anti-hero in the same way that The Sopranos was, but it was also a show that was actually very light and funny. Mm. So I think it was a show that said, you know, there's you, people want to see fantastic drama, but you can also add a bit of lightness and colour to things. Mm. Um, going to talk about, like, our favourite moments of the show. Um, um, one of my favourites... Um, kind of one that you probably wouldn't immediately spring to mind. Um, but it's uh, Lane punching Pete Campbell in the face <laughs> um, because that was a, kind of uh, Jared Harris doing what most of the audience wanted to do because uh, Pete Campbell, who's you know, brought to life by uh, Vincent Carthizer, is it his name? That's um, right, yeah. Um, I mean, kind of brought to life brilliantly because uh, if you see interviews with the actor, he's, you know, he's just a really cool, nice guy. And uh, Pete Campbell is one of the biggest shits uh, on television. Uh, although he kind of gets some way redeemed very, very kind of like naturally and not con- in a contrivance towards the end. Um, but he's a very punchable character. And um, good old Lane, um, you know, put his dupes up and, uh, and gave him, a, you know, a knuckle supper. Yeah, and also at the kind of peak of his most, dis- his, mo- his uh, unlikability. Because, as you say, as as the show wore on, it found more depth and it found more to like in Pete. But, uh, yeah, at that point, he really was just the most unlikable person on television. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I, I, I actually think one of my favourite ones in terms, of, uh, in terms of Lane would probably be, uh, and I think it's another sign of the fact the show was had such a strong ensemble that it could kill off a character like that and just be like, yeah. Uh, after the next season you don't really it's not that you don't miss him because obviously he was a really fun presence on the show but mm. the show didn't feel like it was struggling because he wasn't there um, I, I always really liked the episode where he and Don get pissed and go and watch Godzilla <laughs> just because uh, oh no maybe it's not Godzilla I think it's Gamera they go and see Gamera mm. and it's just very very funny because you based on uh, uh, their chemistry up to that point you wouldn't think that there would be much kind of comedy or fun to be gained from uh, Lane and Don hanging out. But when you see them together, there's just something really great about their odd coupleness that that works really, really well. Um, another favourite moment for me is it's pretty much just a whole episode, the episode The Crash, in which the uh, cast take uh, shots, uh, which I believe are basically speed. Um, mm. They're like meant to keep them hyped up and they all start uh, hallucinating and acting weird which is uh, just one of the most audacious and weird episodes of television I've ever seen. And the moment when Ken Cosgrove just starts tap dancing in the middle of a conversation <laughs> with uh, Don is just one of those wonderful moments where I was watching it and I was like, I can't be- I'll believe what I'm seeing. <laughs> this is just so strange. Mm. Um, 
I like uh, a couple of two images. They're kind of um, similar, um, and they both involve uh, one of the uh, uh, actors with a fag hanging out of their gob. Mm-hmm. One is uh, uh, Betty shooting pigeons in her garden, yep. which is a very iconic um, uh, kind of image. Uh, and a great character moment for her, and also one in the latest series where Peggy hung over a ship because her and uh, Roger have been drinking, um, and it, that, that is preceded by the line where she says to Roger, "Would you drink vermouth?" And he says, "I'm afraid I would." Um, <laughs> and yeah, she she moves her stuff finally from one office to the next, but she's kind of in dark glasses with a fag hanging out, and you know, it's just it manages to kind of pull those moments off that could easily be dismissed as kind of surface cool oh she's got a fag on sunglasses but make them kind of quite deep character moments as well yeah i think uh, in terms of uh, similar moments that kind of uh, chime off of each other in that way two that i'm very fond of are the moment from i think it's the third or the fourth season where all the partners go up to their new office and they all are walking through this empty space and the cameras you know it's kind of a a, a long shot of the five of them just standing with their backs to the camera and they're all perfectly spaced from each other and it's just a wonderfully composed image of them looking out at the promise of a new future and then in the most recent season when they're having their meeting where they're finding out that McCann Erickson are kind of absorbing them and it's the same pretty much the same five characters all just sat there staring at the camera mm. contemplating you know the end of all they've worked for and it's just great how those two shots uh, mirror each other and that scene also has uh, one of the most heartbreaking moments which is when the uh, guy from McCann Erickson is addressing all the male partners and then doesn't t- talk to Joan so she kind of like shoves her chest out a little bit and mm. just kind of think you know she she made so much progress to be accepted as an important person at Sterling Cooper Draper Price but you know as soon as it ends and enters this big corporate hierarchy uh, she becomes so much less in the eyes of the people she works for, which is, you know, then kind of plays out over the rest of the season. Mm. It's cool that moment as well, because like it becomes very apparent. It's the one thing that Don can't pitch his way out of. Mm. Yeah. I think uh, also thinking about the, the way the show changed, I liked how the show became so much less about Don's pitches. Mm. Like it felt in the early seasons, it felt like, that was the thing you were watching for each week. You know, it was kind of like uh, watching the Sopranos and waiting for someone to get whacked or something. You know, it was kind of this this big selling point that's going to be a big water cooler moment. And I think those were the moments that really were what made uh, John Hamm a star because they are just kind of these wonderful little uh, showcases in each episode where he gets to deliver a great heartfelt and passionate speech. And then as the show went along, those the way those pitches changed, like, you know, when he would do them drunk and it would be have a lot of that swagger, but he would just be fumbling over his words. Uh, or in this season where he basically didn't pitch at all. And you got mm. you kind of got the sense of how he changed as he became more of an executive. Like he didn't really do as much of the hands on stuff. And that's kind of a something I thought was quite uh interesting, just to kind of show his development uh as a character but also within the corporate hierarchy in which he worked. Mm. Um, I felt a lot of the time that uh, Mad Men was a bit like The Wire in the sense that it was difficult to pick out specific episodes. Mm. I mean, there might be like one or two, but it's not like, 
The Sopranos, where it's very easy to pick out individual episodes where there's maybe a slightly kind of smaller contained story. But they did uh, they did a bottle episode, um, the suitcase, which I think for me stands out as the single strongest episode that you could just kind of watch. Um, even though there's a lot of character stuff going on there, the way the episode where um, Peggy and Don aren't were the only ones not watching the uh, the Ali Frazier fight, hmm. and they are stuck in the office working on a is it Samsonite they're working on? Uh, um, yes, it is. Yeah, and they're both. They've both got an ulterior motive for wanting to not be there and for being there and they just kind of bounce off each other and it's it's it kind of reinforces that idea that, that at its heart Mad Men is a, is a show about Don and Peggy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I get, like you say, it's a great... It's basically like a little play and that's mm. why it works so well as a self-contained thing because you just have these two characters in one or two rooms talking to each other for pretty much the entire duration. But like you say, it pays off so much stuff because you've you're seeing the them at the absolute nadir of their relationship to each other because he started out as a kind of mentor for her and then she has grown and uh, her growth has kind of uh, stimmied his relationship with her and uh, i think it's it's one of those things where the where things have been bubbling under for so long to see them explode in such a way that feels really natural to the way the two characters are is is really fascinating and i think that's for me that's that's one of the best episodes just in terms of character i think my favorite just the the episode for me that i always think of that was one of the the really kind of high points of the show is the season three finale uh shut the door have a seat just because that was the one where they decided they were going to leave the firm and form their own and it was kind of a heist you know, mm. and then kind of figuring out, okay, Lane needs to fire us all, and then we can take all of our clients and go and form our own thing. Because it was the show at probably its most, uh, its most plot driven and playful. Mm. It was always a, um, in terms of its playfulness, it was a great show for always ending its seasons on something cool. Um, there was a season, I think it might have been season four or maybe five, that ended on uh, Don just having a drink at the bar with the Bond theme playing over the top. Not the Bond theme, but it was a, a song from Bond. I can't remember the, the, the actual specific one. It's a um, You Only Live Twice. That's the one. Uh, and then we also had um, the musical number uh, when uh, Bert Cooper dies uh, at the end of uh, the first half of season seven, which is you know, a stylistically odd thing for a show like Mad Men to do, but because it's... Uh, it was never it never felt outlandish for it to do that even though it was out of step with the rest of the the kind of uh, the style yeah and it was also uh, moments like that were great just because you knew that it was going to drive so many uh, articles and tweets and things online because uh, uh, pretty much what well, I mean one of the, the real fun things about the show and it's this in some ways uh, makes it oddly kind of akin to Lost is that half the fun of the show was the discussion about it and the weird fan theories that came out, like the idea that Megan was just a surrogate for Sharon Tate and she was going to be horribly murdered, which is one of those things that uh, uh, you kind of think, okay, yeah, she's wearing the T-shirt that Sharon Tate wore in a photo, but that's very flimsy evidence, especially because there's not really a huge amount of you know, it's not the sort of show where people die violently very often. 
Mm. Uh, you um, know, the odd, odd character would die, but it, it seemed quite far removed from the world of the show to have that happen. Or the idea, oh, Don is really DB Cooper, and this is his life before he hijacks that plane. Mm. Um, you know, I think something like that. You know, as soon as that musical sequence ended, I think it was within ten minutes. There were things like, oh, Don's got a brain tumor and he's he's hallucinating. That's <laughs> like that's you know, real fucking stretch. Don being DB Cooper would have been fucking awesome. Yeah, that was that was always one of those ones where I thought this is probably not true because uh, it's it just seems kind of nuts. But at the same time, yeah, like you say, it would have just been such an amazing thing for it to take that leap. I mean, I guess there's not a huge amount of difference between that and having him pen the coke ad in terms of mm. you know, making him a real life person, but to have him be this, you know mythical person from American history well not mythical but I suppose he is he's real but he became something of a myth because of the insane thing he did uh, would have been a a very bold choice for the show mm, yeah yeah um, what's uh, Matthew Weiner up to now has he uh, got something else going on or uh, what can we look forward to from him next is he going to take a holiday uh, or is he going to you know end up doing a you know a show that's going to debut in a really weird outlet uh, yeah, he's going to do a show for CFAX. It's <laughs> yeah. just going to be just going to be a a dramatic version of that quiz they used to do. <laughs> Bamboozle. <laughs> Bamboozle. Yeah. Um, I don't think he's got anything announced. I think he's probably he seems to be sitting into the same position that David Chase was in at, after The Sopranos ended, where nothing's been announced. I don't think he's sold anything, so he's probably maybe thinking about doing another film that won't be terribly well received. Um, uh, or, you know, he can probably pitch anything, but uh, at the moment, he's. if I was him, I would be basking in the glory of this great thing that I've achieved. Mm-hmm. Which isn't a bad place to be. No, absolutely not. And maybe John Hamm will stop being offered roles that are just, uh, you know, Don Draper. Because you know, I was remembering an article with him just saying that, like... Uh, that's all he gets offered, which is you know bound to happen. But I'd like to see him kind of stretching his uh, uh, comedic muscles because he's a very funny individual. His kind of appearances on comedy, bang bang, um, especially his uh, greatest Shakespearean uh, uh, actor uh, riff off with uh, John C. Riley, played by um, Paul F. Tompkins, is fucking hilarious. Yeah, he's also an amazing player on Doug Love's movies. He knows his films. Yeah, in terms of his, uh, I think it's interesting hearing the roles he was offered they didn't get. I was really fascinated to hear that he was a strong contender for Gone Girl. Uh, really? Yeah, he was going to play the Ben Affleck part, but the schedule they just couldn't make the schedule work of his filming the show. Uh, and I think that's a very interesting. I don't think that film would have made as much money without Ben Affleck because he's obviously a big star. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think it'd be he would Don Bra- uh, Don Draper. John Hamm would probably have been a better fit in terms of making that character immensely dislikable. Because mm-hmm. he obviously, but while at the same time being charming, whereas I feel like Ben Affleck uh, kind of soft-pedalled how much of a dick the character is meant to be. Mm. Not very well, <laughs> I'll say that much. But yeah. Okay, so that's, uh, that's Mad Men, a great show, and I'll be sad to see it go, but... Uh, as we keep saying and keep we keep saying that we're bored of saying it uh, as one of the kind of pillars uh, that this golden age of television has been built upon uh, it's there now it'll always be there 
um, and it'll always be an amazing show. Um, we've got something kind of pretty amazing ourselves coming up, haven't we? And we've got a uh, hundredth episode uh, coming up, and the reason we're talking about it now is that we'd like uh, the listeners at home to get involved because we're going to do one of those episodes where we let people ask us anything. It was a lot of fun last time. We thought we'd do it again. Yeah, so if you have any questions you would like to ask us about film in general, about the show, about our lives, uh, we will try and answer as many as possible. I think the we'll probably be recording it maybe on the 13th of June, so as long as you get the question to us before then, we'll try and answer as many as we can uh, on the air. Uh, so yeah, please send them to us through Twitter, on our Facebook page, uh, to us directly if you would like to, you know, or, you know, if you know us personally, just kind of say to us what you would like us to answer. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and we're, we're really looking forward to it because, like you say, the first time we did that was immense fun and we want to do something uh, a bit different for the for our 100th episode, which is, you know, a big milestone for us. Yeah, cool. Uh, and that's in a couple of weeks' time. We've got to have something different next week. Um, and until then, it'll be goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.